The Premier League soccer season is heating up. Turn to Betting Weekly English Premier League on the Bet Rivers Network for the best bets and analysis for this week's features. Subscribe to Betting Weekly Premier League today wherever you get your podcast. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love Betting Weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with the 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Mark Pringle, standing in for Barney Hoskins, his very big shoes to fill, with my colleagues Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Mark. And, and Martin Collier. Hi, Mark. Um, Jasper. Today we're going to be talking, we've got audio of Lindsay Buckingham being interviewed in 2011, Buena Vista Social Club, 25th anniversary. But we're going to be talking about Jan Juhalski, the legendary Queen writer. She was going to be our guest today, but she's indisposed. We at Roxback Pages send our very best wishes to Jan. She was a, kind of a founding part of the cream scene. She initially started off, I believe, working in subscriptions. And um, then she became absolutely one of their, their great writers. She's a, a Detroit native herself. We've got three pieces on by her on the site this week for free for visitors, including her very first piece, which is marvellous, which is she was commissioned by her editor to go to a Smokey Robinson press conference where he's announcing his retirement from the miracles. And she she wrote it up as a, a an open letter to Smokey Robinson. It's fabulous. It, it, yeah. It's it's so great. She's saying, you know, how could you leave us like this? Um, <laughs> she says, dear Smokey, and maybe you'll go away and never call, and the taste of honey is worse than none at all. Poured out of the battered transistor AM radio as two mascara-tiered 15-year-olds keep a constant vigil at the silent phone. <laughs> Whatever heart it's brilliant. Whatever heartfelt teenage tragedy I was lamenting over, Smokey, you always made me feel worse, which at 15 was better because you couldn't really get off on feeling sorry for yourself. Syrupy love poems and true confessions. And she kind of goes on. And she does do fantastic opening paragraphs. She? She, yeah. she, she's absolutely fantastic. Now those awkward, anguishing days are long gone, packed away with V-neck sweaters, ID bracelets and the in-crowd. But I'm feeling sorry for myself again, not for the lost football jock, but because smoke is leaving. And it's, it's, it's just a marvellous, marvellous piece of writing. It's wonderfully original and heartfelt, and clever at the same time. I yeah. really like that combination of like, she really is writing from the heart, but in a way that's funny and self-aware and yeah, just intelligent. It's, it's brilliant. I really, yeah. It, it's really amazing. It. And it, this was her first piece and it became a cover story for the magazine. So, I mean, that's a oh, wow. pretty great debut to make, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We've also got a, a, a terrific interview with Susie Quattro. Now, Susie Quattro, of course, is a Detroit girl herself. Her dad, Mike Quattro, I believe, was a real mover and shaker in Detroit pop circles. Jan was uh, sold soda pop at the Grandy Ballroom. I, there's a very good chance that 
she'd have come across Susie before, if not face to face. She had almost certainly seen Susie's early bands playing the, the Detroit rock and roll scene. She also wrote about this Detroit punk band called Death. And it's a really interesting piece because it's, it's in that sort of interesting area, interesting area where black rock bands existed, but, but sort of struggled to sort of have any sort of impact. Black Murder being another one, mm. case in point. Um, mm. And this piece is very interesting because it just, it, it, a lot of people are now saying that given the right breaks, given their choice to change their name, because one of the reasons why they weren't signed was because being called death was regarded as pretty bad <laughs> marketing mechanism. Um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people are now hailing that stu- their stuff as, as sort of, you know, proto-CBGBs sort of American mm. punk rock, you know, and also very much a Detroit sound, you know, in 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 the lineage of the Stooges and the MC5 and so on and so forth. So uh, it's a it's a, it's it's a really good piece. But the last piece is, I think, the absolute killer. I dreamed I was on stage with Kiss in my maiden form bra. <laughs> that's that's the one. Um, what she did, she struck a deal in order to kind of do a piece on Kiss. She um, asked the Kiss's management if she could actually go on stage with them. And this is just a fantastic report of the whole thing. <laughs> she kind of, you know, be made up by the band in the dressing room uh, and, yeah. and, and getting her four minutes on stage. I mean, any particular highlights of this piece, you guys? I really love the bit where she goes. She she goes to the rehearsal just to check that, that <laughs> you know it's going to happen and to introduce herself to the band. And she says, "Soon after I arrived, I found some of the band lounging on the side of the stage. So I walked up and asked what they thought of the idea of me being a kiss kissette for a night. <laughs> they looked at me vacantly, and I realised that no one had told them. I felt like a rocket who gets told thanks at the open call before she's had a chance to do her dance." Undaunted, I fumed at the executive in residence and demanded he explain the plan. I love the executive in residence because it was somebody from the record company, but whoever they were, it didn't matter. (laughs) I like when she actually goes on stage Uh and then doesn't want to get off again. I mean, she's nervous and nervous and nervous about it. And then she's on it and then she's like, I'm here. And she tries to like take the mic off one of them and and really gets into it. It's just, it's a really wonderfully evocative piece of writing. Again, you can really live along with the drama of it. It's just brilliant. It's fantastic stuff. The making up, I think I find her being made up backstage. is <laughs> By general consensus, Kiss has decided to make me up as a composite of all of them, just like the back cover of the Hosses and Hell album. Now for the actual transformation. Side straddling the bench, I faced Simmons in his black satin prize fighter robe with Otto Heindlum blazoned on the back. Try not to giggle as English comes out of this Halloween monster thing. It's time to make a little monster. Now watch, so you can do this, he instructs as if he's a counsellor for the Elizabeth Arden School of Beauty. (laughs) First, rub Steen's clown white all over your face. Smooth it very lightly, only using a little round the eyes. Gene etches Maybelline black on my dry to normal skin, sketching his (laughs) his bat insignia. Hey, don't make her up just like you, yells Stanley. I'm not, I told you, we each get a crack at her. Ace splotches a silver dot on my nose, and Pete adds his own feline touch in messy black chrome. Paul pauses over the conglomeration and draws a smaller version of his star. Funny, somehow, I felt some kind of immunity behind the paint, a little more confidence. Maybe this rock and roll business won't be so bad after all. Gene holds up a mirror and stands back, telling me to look at my reflection. Don't you feel special, he inquires. No, silly, I admit. 
Come on, you look very groupy. I do not argue. And so it goes on. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's absolutely marvellous. I actually dug out um, the spread to look at today, and it's, it's, it's a, some very, very funny photographs in there. But it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's, it's great stuff. Someday we'll have to get Jan on Definitely. a podcast to talk about Definitely. this because it's, it's so, it's, yeah, it's some of the best writing of that kind that is, is brilliant. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, she's a pioneering, particularly in the American rock press, a pioneering woman journalist. I mean, there, there have been mm. a handful before, but she's, and she's such a stylish writer. I mean, I, I, mm. I, I, I think that's the thing that always gets to me. Shall we move on to Buena Vista? Sure. Let's move on to Buena Vista. Right. Well, it's the 25th anniversary of Rai Kuda's associated Buena Vista Social Club. Um, any of you a particular expert on the subject? No, I kind of was slightly resistant to the whole thing at first. Although I think I was probably, I don't know why that was. But actually, the, the music is great. And it is really interesting. The story of how it happens is really interesting. They're meant to be recording a bunch of African musicians in Cuba, uh-huh. who get held up, or in fact, they never make it. They they are stuck at the airport. And so Nick Gold and Rye are down there. They have mm-hmm. the studio booked. And then it, you know, it, there's, there's, it's too long to go into now, but they, they kind of pull all these people together who haven't been in a recording studio in 50 years, maybe. And it's an extraordinary kind of story, really, but of happenstance and and luck and this amazing recording room at the Egrim Studios, which does sound fantastic as a as a space. Absolutely. And then Vin Vendors makes a film about it after after the album's recorded, a yeah. documentary film. I've actually never seen the film. I've listened to the album since childhood. I mean, it was sort of a CD that was kind of hanging around because it did have this massive success. So I think a lot of people ended up getting it. And and yeah, I, I really like the album. It has a kind of almost timeless sort of time capsule feel of, about it. And an interesting, I was reading about it that even you know at the time, a lot of Cubans wouldn't necessarily have heard or recognised that music no. as as contemporary or anything like that. So it is kind of just this special little yes, bubble. It's, of, it's like an archaeological dig back into yeah. uh, into a bunch of styles that had entirely uh, disappeared, yeah. really. And luckily, they found they found great stylists from each area yeah, of yeah, music, yeah. and they'd never often they'd never played together. It's very interesting you should say that. I mean, the of the three pieces we're running, and Nicholas Jennings is a broad overview of the whole project, but Joel Sullivan is actually talking about it and putting it in the context of modern Cuba, very interestingly, that this is music that young Cubans would not have listened to at all, would be almost completely yeah. unaware of. Martin, I was kind of resistant to it when it first came out, but I've, I actually finally got to see the movie. And uh, I think it's the movie which, as much as anything else, really sort of swung me around to it. That Raikud is very discreet. You know, his, his playing on this stuff is yep. very discreet. Mm. It's not. It's not like a Raikud record at all. Not at all. And then for, the emergence for me of Ruben Gonzalez was, I think, probably the oh, biggest yeah. thing. Um, that that introducing Ruben Gonzalez album is my favourite record of all of, of of those Buena Vista things. Yeah, there is something special about that record. The other one I really like is the one he made with the guitarist Manuel Galban called Mambo Sinuendo, which is really the two mm-hmm. of them 
twanging playing twanging guitars um yeah that's a which nice is record, a really actually. good it's record. Got a, got a kind of airplane on the cover hasn't it another, yes, another it, one that yeah actually uh, i think it, it's the back fin of a cadillac but i'm not sure oh okay as <laughs> a kid like i must a have thought it was an airplane yeah yeah because yeah. <laughs> there's another one that i probably haven't listened to it for about 15 years or longer and i should go back to it because i have very fond memories of it but no yeah. yeah all of those players that kind of emerged from it compay segundo you know who's like i think joel selvin in his piece mentions that his first tour in cuba was in 1938 and then in 1996 yeah. 1997 <laughs> he's, he's recording in 1999 he still goes on tour it's like wow you know this kind of uh, yeah time travel almost it's, it's yeah. great yes, and they got them just in time because fairly rapidly yeah. after the movie was made they started dying yeah. off one by one yeah. it's also yeah. a, a marvelous sort of second act in their lives you know that they're all yes. pretty much stopped playing music professionally haven't they in fact completely retired totally. people totally i don't i think some of them didn't even have the instruments that they were famed for playing on so, yeah. you know, incredibly kind of... I, I mean, the other thing is that, is that they recorded it beautifully. I mean, it's obviously a fairly old Havana studio, which probably now yeah. everyone would look at it and say, what fabulous vintage gear they have. But but it, it, is, yeah. it, it is fabulous sounding. Yeah, it's brilliant. But they had buckets on the floor because there were holes in the roof. I mean, it was like... That, it was not a really working, working studio. It was a kind of slightly in mothballs. Amazing sound. It sounds fabulous. And I think the other thing about it is that it has actually managed to be quite influential into kind of contemporary music. It's been sampled quite a bit. And that sound has kind of, I think a lot of people, my generation would recognize Buena Vista Social Club. And it kind of bridges a gap in a way and, and lets people, because it's been so well recorded, you can sample it really nicely. Yeah. And it sort of crops up everywhere. And it's it's kind of this, this sort of guiding thread of, of that sound that still still persists, for me anyway. That's interesting. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, it's sort of, it's not just pre-salsa, it's almost pre-mambo. It's, uh, it, mm. it, it's, it's very, a lot of the music's very stately. Mm. You know, very little of it's fast. For example, it's the the the, the, the it's it's quite strict tempo stuff. Yeah, it's and still of course, good to dance to though. It's oh, still you can still you know it's it's fantastic. You know, it's just grooves really slinky. well. Yeah, I mean, it's just that, that you know, kind of in in its historical context, it basically what mm, you're listening mm. to is what evolved into mambo. Yes, mambo was, yeah. was exported to New York in in in, yes. in the forties and fifties, uh, which are ultimately evolved into salsa so it's it's it is part of that that extraordinary story but brilliant well we're talking about raikuda who as you say is very restrained in in the in most of the cuban recordings i think you know because he thought what was happening was so great that he kind of rather brilliantly became a piece of the structure, not at all a kind of soloist. But I went to see him play in Dublin a couple of years ago after his son, Joaquin, who plays on the Buena Vista stuff, had said, people want to hear you play guitar, which he didn't think they did. But anyway, as soon as he put a tour together, it sold out instantly. So I couldn't get tickets for London. <laughs> so so I got tickets for Dublin where where we went to see him in the National Stadium, which is a purpose-built boxing stadium from the <laughs> 30s. It's the maddest place. Um, apparently, um, Brian Adams, once he saw it, couldn't believe it was a National Stadium because he played big. <laughs> he played places with bigger dressing rooms than this. And what was fantastic is at the back, because it was a boxing venue and they had no alcohol, at the back was a little uh, kind of 
a tiny little shop selling cuppa soup and sweets. And <laughs> <laughs> which presumably when boxing is on, it's kind of what you want to eat and drink. But uh, but it was it was a slightly surreal experience. And the sound was unbelievably good. You know, who thought? You know, a concrete boxing ring would actually be a great place to see a band, and it was <laughs> it was a sensational concert. Super. Really, Wacom gets some. There's a, the third piece that we have about Buena Vista is is by Fred Schurz in Rolling Stone in '99, and it, Wacom and Rye both get interviewed in that, and that's nice as well because Wacom kind of talks about being. He was quite young when that yeah. happened, like, you know, I think like 18 or something, and and it being quite. Like nervous, uh, but then not being intimidated by by the Cuban musicians. We sat down to record Chan Chan, and all of a sudden there was the first take, and you didn't think about it. Rice says they're very brotherly, and we came in just as players. If they pick up on you as a good brother, then you are that. And I think you know that that actually sums up the vibe of the the whole session. So there is this kind of sure, yeah. you know unforced brotherly kind of, sisterly yeah. kind of unforced feel about the whole thing. I mean, you know, I've sort of been kind of the. the Patches of Raikou's career I've absolutely adored. I mean, Paradise and Lunch around that sort of time, the stuff he did with, what's the name of that, the accordion player, the stuff he did with... Flacco Jimenez. Flacco Jimenez. Uh, And then, I don't know, I I sort of started losing interest. And he started doing a lot of film soundtrack work, some of which, like, for Vim Vendors. Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas, was was was, hu- was huge. He's a curious guy to read interviews with because he's quite bad tempered. You know, <laughs> he, he, it's like it's like you know when, when you know uh, when he started doing film music, he started complaining that people were watching the movie rather than listening to the music, which is you know a misunderstanding of how about. film music works. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just a bit, and, and so you often, when you read interviews with him, you get this kind of underlying sense of dissatisfaction with his lot, even though he's had, by any account, a fantastic life as a musician. You know, I mean, yeah, for years, yeah, yeah. Bank, you know, for years, Warner, Warner Brothers bankrolled him to make records, which not many mm-hmm. people bought because they thought it was important artistically for the label to have this stuff on. You know, yeah. He, yeah. He, he's had a pretty lucky life, so but he's he's a bit of a moaner, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think John John Hyatt called him Uncle Grumpy or something. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I mean, um, moving from one Los Angeles denizen to another, let's talk about the audio this this week, um, uh, which is um, Bud Scoper 2011 interview with Lindsay Buckingham. It's pretty riveting stuff. Let me get my notes up. Here we go. He's just um, actually, as it happens, self-released his most recent. What is about to self-release his most his his most recent studio album, solo album, Seeds We Sow. But on this is very much about Fleetwood Mac. I mean, in, in a way, he says that his that Tusk is the sort of the key thing. Is that he regards Tusk as almost the start of his solo career, and he talks about not wanting Tusk to be rumours too, and. He talks extensively about r- rumours and about what the whole dynamic went into them being. In, well, being in the same room as these marriages and partnerships breaking up, the difficulty yeah. of seeing his ex uh, you know, every day, Stevie Nicks. 
and also he starting to listen to a lot of new wave music, you know, what he would call new wave music, though he himself is very cautious about that particular term, whether from Britain or America. Let's listen to his first clip. This is on Tusk. The irony of Tusk was that I did engage the band in the process and in the idea of that, and what what broke that sense, that spell, or what they weren't engaged in was the commercial outcome. Yeah. And it's not that it didn't sell; it sold four or five million albums, and it was a double album. But because it did not stand up to the previous thing, there was this edict that came down, and we've probably talked about this before, and yeah. it, where, where basically they said, well, we're going to go back to something a little more to the right, and had there not been that reaction from the rest of the band, I probably would never have started making solo albums, because there would never have been a need for the outlet, you know, for the left side of the palette, which was yeah. there for me, yeah. and I don't begrudge them at all, that, yeah. that uh, reaction, I mean, there's certainly more than one way to look at what all of that was about. I mean, I look at it in a certain way. I think at the time they probably just saw me as a troublemaker. I'm sure the record company did too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yes. <laughs> What's he doing? He's fucking with the fly. Yes. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they put that, that, that album on in the boardroom. <laughs> <you know? laughs> what was that we just heard? I love that. I mean, this, this, wanting to be a fly on the wall of the boardroom when uh, the <laughs> executives first heard it. I mean, you know, Tusk was a pretty brave thing for a band like Fleetwood Mac to do. Totally. It still sounds kind of sweet, generous, really. It's not. There's tracks on it that are not like most other pop albums at that time or rock albums. Mm. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I myself was slightly baffled by it. I'm, did I really listen to it at the time? I'm not sure I really did. I, I'm not many people I knew were listening to Fleetwood Mac records by 1980. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> he goes on about like, his solo album and about his fondness for Brian Jones' era Rolling Stones and forming his own music at this particular point in time, discovering new music, uh, his current lifestyle and relationships, which I'll go on to in a moment, songwriting and lyrics, usual stuff that musicians talk about in interviews. Um, <laughs> and then he goes on, he goes, kind of returns to the, because he has been touring intermittently with Fleet Mac and was having a solo career. He sort of goes, goes into that aspect. So let's listen to the next clip, which is pretty much about that. I mean, I, I, it's funny because I, I get to this point now where all all these choices seem to add up to something that a little more tangible, where I feel like they were not not bad choices that I made, if not popular at the time. Uh, I feel like my street cred is is better than it's ever been. But you know, yeah. the 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 other side of that is that I'm well aware that that does not translate to marketability, yeah. uh, nor should it necessarily. Yeah. But you know that's that's the nature of the solo beast for me, and and to some degree it always has been. It's just uh, easier to come to terms with with what it is and what it isn't at this point, you know, and then be, be completely happy to go out and rest on my laurels with Fleetwood Mac for a while too, yeah. because there's there's something to be said for that too, and and if you do that properly, 
you know that's that can that has its its own uh, credibility and it, it, its own sense of uh, uh, it, its own code to it. And there's a, there's a kind of a story that that is still evolving with that band, if you, if that's possible after all these years. With so Stevie you, and me, oh my God, yeah, you know we're yeah. getting along better than ever. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now. This, this this is really worth following up on. Just this year, well, let, let's let's go back a bit. Twenty eighteen, he's sacked by Fleetwood Mac. Twenty nineteen, he has an emergency heart bypass operation. Twenty twenty, he's, he's divorced by his wife, who he talks about in this this interview in you know, fond relationship terms. And in twenty twenty one, he gives an interview. I forget which magazine he gave it to blaming Stevie Nicks for him being fired by Fleetwood Mac and, and saying all kinds of horrible things about her, like, you know, basically she's a spinster who hasn't had any children and shit like that. You know, he's weirdly obsessed still mm. with Stevie Nicks in some sort of peculiar way. I mean, that's what sort of strikes me. And he's also kind of got this really curious kind of bitter attitude towards her and also towards the band. Very, very strange man. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, because he's also releasing this new solo album this year, his first since since the one that he's talking about in this interview. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's called it's called Lindsay Buckingham. So it's sort of your seventh solo album. <laughs> you're naming after yourself. It just kind of <laughs> tickles me. First. I kind of think comes out tomorrow. I mean, so it will have come out by the time this podcast is out. But yeah, it's it's a funny funny sort of thing because he he does he is kind of enthusiastic about about. Fleetwood Mac again in this interview and, and about Stevie Nicks and uh, it's odd that it fell apart again given that he seems relatively mature in this interview about <laughs> about that whole situation looking back right well he does but he it's interesting how he keeps referring back particularly to Stevie Nicks in this interview mm. you know yes he's 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 sounding kind of steady and mature and rational but I get the feeling that she still occupies a huge chunk of his headspace. Yeah, so mm. it, and it just comes out in the end as a kind of passive-aggressive thing that's particularly weird for people at this age. Yeah, <laughs> still going yeah. through. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit odd. A bit odd. There you go. Um, we're going to be at the end of the podcast. We're going to be playing a really good clip, actually, about exactly what we've been talking about, really, but about rumors, about the making of rumors, which which is which is which is great fun. It's 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 a it's a very interesting interview. I mean, it is interesting. It's quite pleasant to listen to as well because there's kind of like bird song in the background yeah. and it's been well recorded <laughs> and it it kind of you, you can get into a whole sort of vibe of 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 the situation that they're in. It's, it's a nice one. Mindfulness with Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> <laughs> um Bud has interviewed him before. You know, there's a, uh, and Bud is a very much a kind of Los Angeles figure. He was the, one of the editors on Hits magazine and so on and so forth. So so the, there's a sort of easy degree of familiarity between the two of them, which you know eases the process. But no, it's it's all it's all good stuff. Shall we have a look at what's new in the library? Mm. Let's have a look at what's new in the library, Mark. What what are your highlights for this week? <laughs> well, last week and last week, indeed, indeed. Well, you know, Apologies. First, first things first. Maureen O'Grady and Rave interviewing Keith Moon from the Who in '65, and he talks about their relationships with one another, and he says, "I could say that we really have absolutely nothing in common whatsoever, apart from music. We are so different." And I think that's that's patently true throughout the, the Who's entire career. You know, they, they were four individuals who really didn't like each other very much. He says, <laughs> now our new record is out, My Generation, written by Peter. He always refers to Pete Townsend as Peter. Written by Peter. All about the mod kids and people he knows. 
This next piece is from 66. This is, this is great. Robert Shelton has regular listeners will know is a recent signing to rock's back pages um, dead but um you know via his family terrific writer for the new york times about primarily about folk initially but robert shelton had really appreciates folk rock has got really no problem with folk musicians plugging in we talked about that a bit his about bob dylan and last podcast forest hills he had written a piece in the new york times raving about it. And Sing Out, editor, Sing Out was the establishment folk magazine in America. Sing Out, editor, Erwin Silber, wrote a ferocious letter, slamming Shelton for being an apostate. And he says, your folk music critic may proclaim his fealty to the avant-garde, but he is, in fact, standing guard at the money changer's door. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. So then Robert Shelton wrote a, Robert Shelton wrote a reply, and Tentoff, you know, jazz critic, among other things, also wrote a reply, yeah. as did Paul Nelson, who in those days was a, um, a fanzine editor, went on to write for Rolling Stone and many others, all of whom are pro-Shelton. Matt Tentoff, Paul Nelson, they completely agree Shelton. Yeah. <laughs> And this is 1966, so anyway, this is the last squeak of the folk purists. I mean... Yeah. Yes, uh, by this point, like a Rolling Stones happened, so it's kind of... Well, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very funny. I love that, standing guard at the money door. Uh, <laughs> nothing worse than a scorned folky. Nothing worse than a scorned folky. <laughs> Hell hath no fury. Hell yes. hath no fury. Uh, Record Mirror 68. Lon Goddard, who's a Facebook friend, valuable part of the Roxback Pages fraternity, interviewing Sly Stone. He, Sly says, I think the Beatles are dropping a, a lot in popularity anyway. Not that I don't like them. They're still Britain's best export. Now, 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 I, I, that sounds more like the hand of Lon Goddard than the voice of Sly Stone. <laughs> but I, I could be wrong, and Lon, I'm sure, will let me know one way or the other. <laughs> 1970 Melody Maker, Leonard Cohen to Roy Hollingworth. I could never really describe myself. If I looked at myself in the third person, I don't think I'd recognise what I saw. And he says, you know what the greatest thing would be? Be to play a concert in front of 50,000 middle-aged people. I think he got his wish. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny because he's he's young at this point, right? He's in his 20s and he's he's longing to play for... No, he's older than that. Older than that, but, but... yeah. Basically, he doesn't like being sort of yelled at. I think he wants he wants a sedate audience. <laughs> you didn't want people shouting boogie at him. No, <laughs> <laughs> I doubt he got me in those. Nineteen seventy-one, Burt Bacharach playing the Cow Palace in San Francisco, what? or Baby City, San Francisco. Now, Cow Palace is a vast venue, and Burt Bacharach managed to get Elwood thinks about six thousand people in there. This is Burt Bacharach, you know. We. I don't think in this country, certainly back then, had any sense of him as a solo performer. He was just the guy who wrote the songs for Dionne Warwick. But uh, Elwood really doesn't like this concert at all. He says, so many of the melodies, so much of the orchestration, and such a large amount of the changes fall into similar or overlapping patterns that by the set's conclusion, every number begins to sound like a medley of the others. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I, I I just spent yesterday listening to a kind of playlist of Dionne Warwick covers, but, you know, sings Burt Bacharach. Yeah. Of course, I hadn't realised that so many of them, I, kn- I knew that Scylla Black and other English singers, Dusty, had had covered his songs, but it's very interesting to hear the original 
usually it was Dionne Warwick, is actually they're quite plainly done, in a, in a way, compared to their kind of big gushy versions you normally hear of them. Sure. Dionne Warwick's original takes on Baccarat are really, really, although that's not to say that Elwood's wrong. It, it is true that there are, there are tropes and you, you keep hearing a similar kind of build up to certain things. But interesting to go back to the first recordings of Baccarat songs. Mm, they're, not, yeah. they're not as blousy. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, walk on by, walk on by. I think Philip Hullwood at this thing, he said, you know, he, he had a fairly big orchestra with him. He had uh, multiple backing singers and so on and so forth. And Elwood's basically a jazz fan yeah. who then fell in love with, like, San Francisco rock and so on and so forth. So, and I, I think he'd just regard this as over-populist, over-sort of yeah. easy-listening sort of stuff, you know. And I suspect that that would have gotten away of Elwood actually kind of really appreciating the songwriting and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Also, in, in a kind of rock gig, I mean, that's about... I always think of, like, the Cow Palace in terms of Quicksilver Messenger Service. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's what it was, that kind of gig, wasn't it? And it's well, it was, weird it, it, that... It's, it's a huge building. Have you ever seen it? Actually no, seen it? No. It's, a, it's, it's very... It's on the drive to the airport from San Francisco. It's, it's, it's on the left. It's this massive barn. And people like Jackie Wilson used to sell it out. There'd be big R&B shows in the early yeah. mid-60s. Yes, it was... You know, yes, white rock and roll bands played there. Credence Clearwater Revival right. played there yes. a few times, but it wasn't like part of the Winterland Fillmore no. circuit. Um, but Backrack seems an odd. I mean, a bit like the Beach Boys playing the great playing the Fillmore with the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's one of those slightly <laughs> what moments. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to 1980, Trouser Press. Um, Jim Sullivan interviewing Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel had just released his third solo album, which was one which had Beko on it, and I think Games Without Frontiers. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's, certainly Beko was on it. And actually, Peter Gabriel was genuinely interesting at that point, particular point. You know, I mean, if you think about Phil Collins in the in in the air tonight, that's Phil Collins channeling Peter Gabriel's production because Peter Gabriel famously refused to let Phil Collins use symbols on the stuff they were doing, <laughs> um, which which is. Actually, yeah. you know, fantastic. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a big, big fan. Certainly, was never a Genesis fan, but I did appreciate what Peter Gabriel was doing around this time. And he's just saying, he says this. He says, "Progressive used to mean people who are exploring music, and it came to mean people who used a lot of keyboards." <laughs> <laughs> that is a very concise way of yeah. uh, explaining how prog became prog. Uh, I, I absolutely love that. Well, also everything that went, went wrong with prog. You know, yeah, yes, uh, 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 and although I would contend it wasn't just keyboard players, it was also guitar players trying to sound like keyboards and going widdly 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 widdly. Uh, well, <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I do disagree with you there, Jasper. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for me, like the moment yes went wrong was when Rick Waitman joined, even though I have a yeah, lot of sure. time for Rick Waitman. I mean, he did marvelous stuff with David Bowie and yeah, so on and yeah. so forth, but give that guy a chance to use a million keyboards. And then, of course, Keith Emerson, no, Emerson, Lake, and sure. Palmer. You know, these, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer are the defining awful prog band. <laughs> yes, but weirdly, someone told me a story of, of Keith Emerson going to play some pianos at the Steinway showroom to, yeah. to choose one. And the, the Steinway guy there reported to I don't know, a record mirror uh, reporter or something that, that he'd never heard anyone play as well as Keith Emerson did. He oh. had the best touch 
you know, funny because oh. I, I just see him sticking a knife in a Hammond. But, you know. <laughs> hey, mate, look, that, the two things, they don't preclude each other. No, you know? no, I, absolutely. <laughs> There's a taste question involved, too. Yeah, there yeah, is. There absolutely. is. August 83, Melody Maker, our very first mention of the Smiths in on Rock's Back Pages. They are bottom of the bill supporting SPK and topping the bill how Devoto Lyceum. And it sounds miserable. You know, he, he hates, Sweeting hates how Devoto has no interest in SPK. He says, the Smiths were in flight as I arrived, warbling into the gloom as though the indifferent crowd somehow owed them something, thrumming and strumming like the farmer's boys with cow dung spilling into their waders. The Smiths remained obstinately and depressingly earthbound. I headed for the scrum at the bar. <laughs> So that that is our very first mention of the Smiths on Rock's Back Pages. So I think it's, <laughs> it's almost there's a circularity there. <laughs> yeah. Again, first very first thing. This is John Harris interviewing Radiohead, for Melody Maker. Even though John Harris went on to write The Enemy, this is Melody Maker, and I think he wrote it when he's still a student at Oxford. And Radiohead had just changed their name from was it on a Thursday or some ghastly thing like on that? On a Friday. On a Friday. <laughs> Thursday, Friday, whenever, uh, and they've just they've they've, they've just having their, their first EP is about to be released on Parlophone. Johnny Greenwood says, "I really hate the idea of radio waves being inescapable. Wherever you go, they're going through you. It's horrible. Radio <laughs> waves. It'll probably be five G now." Um, <laughs> You need to Tom, ask him. Tom York says, all our songs come from a state of conflict. And if, if you listen to them in the right way, you're bound to feel that conflict as well. He also says, and this is interesting, he says, Smells Like Teen Spirit had the kind of feel we we're after. When it came on the radio, you had no choice but to listen to it. I, mean, I kind of like mm. the idea of Tom York as grunge fan. Mm. I can actually see yeah, that in a way, that, that, that there's a, not that they sound the same, but that there's a kind of, edge of you know when when radiohead are good there is a there's an edge to it as well do you like radiohead jasper i'm not a, i mean there's some of it i like i'm not i wouldn't say that i'm a fan i but i can appreciate you know some chunks of it and i i don't know i, n- I never really got into them when they were at their at the height of their powers but since then i've listened to them i think mostly because i like johnny greenwood's film stuff i kind of thought oh i'll, I'll give this another listen and, and i found stuff that i did actually yeah, yeah. like Interesting. I mean, I, Johnny Greenwood's what I like about that band. Sonically, mm. I think he's everything that's interesting really stems from him. And Tom York is what I least like about this band. Um, <laughs> his pain. You know, I'm really not interested in Tom York's pain, frankly. His conflict. You can fuck off. You know. But <laughs> but, but but yeah, Johnny. You heard it here first, Tom. <laughs> right. Well, this week. This week's got some really good stuff. First of all, an uncredited review of Ruth Franklin's first Atlantic album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. This is from July 67, Record Mirror. And it says, it's taken time for Miss Franklin to break through here, though her reputation has been boosted by such as D. Springfield. But this satisfying <laughs> set underlines her excellent piano playing too. And most of the arrangements stemmed from Aretha just sitting and playing and singing, the horns and vocal answers coming in later, all part of a seemingly natural development. Incidentally, Aretha had a hand in writing several of the tracks. Now, that's so really interesting because this writer had heard, I don't know how, about how that that album was made. and mm. It was very much Aretha sitting at the piano, running through the songs and, and basically the arrangements stemming from that. I don't think that was widely known. No, no, that's quite, that seems quite a thoughtful take on, on it that early. Yeah. 
I, I think so. It's a really good review. I mean, she, the, the, the reviewer does imply um, that finds her singing sometimes a bit over the top. He's wrong. Well, I couldn't agree more. But it's one of those objective wrongnesses in. in, no, in it's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as Richard Williams would say. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I know. Next piece is actually something that Martin and I will want to talk about at a little length. It's, it's Paul, Butterfield's, <laughs> Paul Butterfield's Better Days, the Elvin Mission Group and Mike Bloomfield playing Winterland. I'm strapping myself in. Playing <laughs> Winterland in San Francisco. Again, <laughs> Philip Elwood and the San Francisco Examiner, February 73. And he says, Jeff Maldur, for instance, is a gorgeous singer. Please send me someone to love. Couldn't have been mellower. His slide guitar and funky piano are equally strong. Billy Rich's bass lines transcend blues and jazz, adding quite unusual foundation harmonies that span the whole ensemble sound. Amos Garrett's lead guitar has firmness, definition, inspiration, and some good old-style pop guitar sounds. And Butter, well, it's great to hear his harp again, especially in such an unusual group. Now, Martin and I, pretty early on, adopted Amos Garrett as a guitar <laughs> hero. He, he was on in Paul Butterfield's Better Days. He made albums with... Jeff Maldur. Most of you out there who aren't aficionados of all things Amos Garrett will be familiar with him for his solo on Maria Maldur's Midnight at the Oasis, which was a big hit. And uh, it's through Martin, basically. That I remember Martin had, uh, you had this Paul Butterfield Best Days double album with this fabulous cover. Yes, uh, which, Milton which, Glaser. That's right. It was a photograph of a harmonica making it look like a bit of Victorian furniture. It's absolutely fantastic. And that song, Please Send Me Someone to Love, is, is, is astonishing. What's the great track on Jeff Mulder's, Jeff Mulder's Having a Wonderful Time album that Amos Garrett's great solo is on? Uh, he plays a great solo on G Baby Ain't No Good To You. That, that's right. Just, just yeah. sensational. Not many people know about Amos. I mean... No, it's, it's really odd. I, when I was a... I just left school, I think. Mm-hmm. And and Maria Muldoor came to play a week at Ronnie Scott's, and yeah. I spent the entire week ringing Barbara Sharon in the Warner Brothers press office trying <laughs> to get an interview with Amos Garrett. I don't know why. I'd never written about music in any major way. I just desperately wanted to, <laughs> and I became a real pain in the ass, and I never got to meet Amos Garrett. <laughs> but, but that 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 set at Ronnie Scott's, I mean, she, she had a band that was James Jameson on bass. That's right. Amazing <laughs> band. Amos Garrett on guitar. I mean, staggering, staggering. I can't yeah. remember who else was in it, but it was like, oh, you know, I yeah. wish, I so wish I'd seen that. that. But, but Amos's whole approach was a kind of, I don't even know how you pin it down. It's not, but how would you describe well, the way he it, approaches, for instance, a solo? Well, it's, 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 very, it's very hard to see. Um, um, my friend Martin Stone, the guitar player from Chile and Red Hot Peppers, went along to those nights and he buttonholed Amos Garrett and, and said to Amos, uh, you, you listen to a lot of Les Paul, don't you? And Amos denied this flat out tonight. But, you, <laughs> but actually, I, I can hear Les uh, Paul yes. in, 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 in his playing. It's got a sort of jazzy touch with a country twang simultaneously. That's but it. then his his melodic sense is extraordinary. So he surprises you all the time by going to intervals and places you don't expect him to go to.
He was a very good trombone player too, and I don't know whether that, you, you know, it's like Rick Danko could play the tu- was a tuba player in school. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to that, some of Danko's work, apart from the James Jameson influence uh, and his own unique stuff, there's there's a tuba esque thing to certain <laughs> band songs. And I think Amos Gant had that thing of kind of there's a lot of kind of low notes in his rhythm playing behind sure. the track, uh, which are really interesting. He's yeah. just a unique player. I mean, I, I just can't recommend it more. Please send me someone to, someone to love by Paul Butterfield's Better Days. Yeah. G. Baby, uh, Good To You, Jeff Mulder, Midnight at Oasis, Maria Mulder. And if you can find Georgia on my mind from the Jeff and Maria album, Pottery Pies, that apparently at one point Robbie Robertson had that on repeat, the solo in Georgia uh, on my mind, around yeah, the time that they were all working together on Bobby Charles' record. I mean, I'd have to say oh, Bobby Charles, Tennessee wanna... Blues. Well, of course, of course. I mean, yeah. he's, he's on he's on a bunch of Martin and my favourite records. And I'd say absolutely one of my favourite guitar players of all time. Great, great guy. Nice. Nineteen seventy-four. Michael Watts interviewing Jackson Brown. We had Jennifer Ross Bickerdike on the podcast talking about her Nico book recently, and so Jackson Brown says, "Why the stuff about Nico? For this year, no one had even heard of what I did with her." <laughs> He's a lot of interviews about his time in New York. Says, "For one thing, I was always scared to death of Lou Reed. You know, he was really heavy. <laughs> I thought uh, it's so funny. You never pictured Jackson Brown being in New York." At the time yeah. of the Velvet Underground, I mean, it's so such a kind of strange and, it, and being. I mean, he was like so 17. young at that time. Yeah, yes. he was. He was like a kid. Yeah, blimey. He had to escape to Laurel Canyon. Right, my old friend Cahill Coughlin from Micro Disney to Paul Mather, enemy eighty four. He says, "I may be an alcoholic by the time I'm thirty, but at least I'll be a far more interesting person than George Michael." <laughs> uh, I love you, Cahill, but you know. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, <laughs> he may not be. 92, Kurt Cobain, Stefan Shiraz. This is, a very, this is a really interesting piece for Kerrang. We, we always think of Kerrang as a metal magazine. They were very early adopters of grunge. They wrote Good about grunge. They were, exactly. They wrote about, in fact, Kerrang is a much more interesting magazine than a lot of people think of it, because a lot of people just dismiss it simply as a... As, as a metal mm. paper. And, and Stefan Shirazi is a terrific writer, consistently yeah. good. He interviews Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain says, sexism is the top of all the isms, as far as I'm concerned, because a man dominates and controls everything, which is great. I mean, mm. the, the, Kurt was well known for his, his, his belief in women's equality and so on and so forth. And he liked, you know, women artists. He, he was a promoter. He promoted the raincoats when they were long gone, mm. obscurity. You know, he's, Pretty right on guy was old Kurt. Lastly, David Sinclair reviewing Pulp, different class to the Times, 27 October 95. Cocker emerges as a shrewd, if somewhat world-weary commentator, with a playwright's ear for words, while the band supplies a suitably dramatic, eccentric, and at times even epic musical backdrop. Love it or loathe it, different classes in a class of its own, and Pulp's reputation as Pop's ranking outsiders remains gloriously intact. Well, right, I would agree of every mm. every word of that. Totally, totally. Pulp, but the only Britpop era band that I actually really genuinely adored, you know, and I think Jarvis mm. Cocker's a, a, a national mm. treasure. 
Jasper, what have you got for us? I've got a couple of things. First of which is a piece by a new writer who we've just signed up, one of a few writers we're getting on board who wrote for the now defunct Stylus magazine, which was a kind of early internet mag kind of came up at the same similar time as, as Pitchfork, but hasn't lasted as long. I think it went went under in 2007, mm-hmm. but we're getting a few writers on board from there. And one of them is Alfred Soto. And so this is a piece, a review of the Killers album Sam's Town by Alfred Soto. And it's a really interesting piece of writing. Romantic tropes, as Byron and Kate Bush understood, are useful simulacra for coitus. If Flowers (laughs) has had sex since the release of Hot Fuss, Sam's Town is a woeful advertisement. It doesn't help that Flowers sings his big numbers like a soccer ball had winded him a minute before opening his mouth. A damn shame, (laughs) since a pip of a tune like All the Things That I've Done showed what a singer whose emotional range compensated for a limited physical range can do. In a touching display of solidarity with their leader's hysterics, the band insert awful fills and accelerate the tempos on sex jive like bones and the river is wild. It's not that Flowers writes songs that he's physically incapable of singing. He writes songs that no one wants to sing, <laughs> which is just wonderfully savage. And the, the, the piece kind of continues along that vein. I, it's great stuff. Have you, do you, have, you ever listened, have you ever listened to that record, to The Killers? Not that record, no. no. Uh, I, mean, I, just, I think they're just dreadful. I never understood everyone's, you know, their <laughs> approbation. They're such a reactionary mob of sort of like, yeah, you know, basic seventies rock and roll revivalists. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't know. I mean, there, there's that one song, Mister Brightside, Mr. that Brightside, has, has yeah. become like this anthem for I don't know. I, I don't really know why either, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's the kind of thing that people play at the end of parties and then mm. get all emotional about it. I, I have to anyway, say, that, don't quite get that, it. But that was a very good bit of writing, though. Yeah, it's fantastic. Soto, Mr. Soto is a useful new addition. So, without very that. pleased to have him on board, and hopefully he's equally scathing about, about a bunch of other things because it's great fun. <laughs> Next up is Will Hermes, Rolling Stone, writing about Blood Orange's album from that year. This is 2018. Mm-hmm. If you haven't listened to it, I really like this album. It's called N-Word Swan. It's a really interesting album. It has a lot of collaborators and a really strong narrative thread. But the collaborators Will Hermes writes about, one of them is P. Diddy. He says, it's a bit off-brand for P. Diddy, but Heinz seems to inspire collaborators to channel their highest selves, an embodiment of the cover image of an elegant black angel sideshowing Oakland style from a car window. The world could use more artists like Heinz, especially now, Heinz being Blood Orange. I mean, Blood Orange is an alter ego for Dev Heinz. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, in a way, the age of streaming is also the age of mega collaborators, right? You have all these, you know, big hits being made by kind of, in a way, unlikely collaborators in a way that wouldn't have happened previously. I think we've talked about this before. But Blood Orange on this album manages to combine a whole bunch of people while keeping a very strong sense of cohesion and sense of self within that. And I think that's a real talent and a, and a really important thing to be able to make something like this. And it's not always the case. Often you'll see like the featured artist either goes under, is lost in the track, or mm-hmm. dominates the track. And there's you know, good collaborations require input from both sides. And I think, you know, he really pulls it off on this album. 
Oh, interesting. Will Hermes is a writer I have a great deal of time for. I mean, he's written one of my absolute favourite books about music called Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Five Years in New York That Changed Music Forever, which is about sort of the late 70s, early 80s, kind of punk scene, but also hip-hop. But crucially, he also writes about salsa, which is often ignored by historians of New York music of that period. Mm. Um, it's a really, really good book. I can't recommend it more highly. Mm. Great. Lastly... Uh, Rock's most dangerous band, why Rammstein's incendiary retelling of history terrifies <laughs> Germany by Ian Winwood in the Daily Telegraph in July 2019. Now, it's a slightly sort of pearl-clutching article about Rammstein um, in the sense that, you know, they've, they've just, I think, made this video about, you know, kind of retelling of German history. And the thing about Rammstein is that they are actually pretty left-leaning in contrast to a number of heavy metal mm-hmm. bands that one can think of. And in a way, they're pretty astute. I mean, they do have this flair for bombast and stuff, but Ian Winwood is kind of making out that like people are, are kind of appalled <laughs> about them. But I, I think most Germans recognize their sense of humor. I mean, their their lyrics are very funny and at times a little bit challenging, but but broadly <laughs> speaking, funny, right? But the other thing that he, he writes about is their is their stage show. As Rammstein's popularity exploded, so too did their stage show, literally. As the band marched into arenas and then into stadiums, their onstage carry-on expanded to include fire-shooting face masks, flamethrowers, projectile <coughs> pyrotechnics, and the kind of fireworks seen in a megacity on New Year's Eve. During Mein Teil, Lorenz plays keyboards inside a giant pot consumed by flames. Not to be upstaged, <laughs> Till Lindemann can often be seen singing while entirely on fire. And then Which brings us back to Kiss, basically. But <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, you have to understand that 99% of the people don't understand the lyrics, so you have to come up with something to keep the drama in the show, said Richard Kusper, one of the band's guitarists. It's great. I and mean, it's what odd about the article, and I suppose it might be because it's in the Daily Telegraph, is that it does talk about their political leanings a little bit and critical stance towards Germany, which is, you know, entirely appropriate. But it's fairly uncritical of the analogue that is drawn, Iron Maiden using Churchill's speech to, to, to walk on stage to. It's, it's sort of odd that, that on the one hand, they're saying, well, you know, it must be difficult for a German band to engage with history while kind of going, hurrah, Iron Maiden quote Churchill. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah. what? How, well, do you, how do you not manage to see the, the slight duality? The anyway, of the English media. I just thought that was funny. So that's my lot. That's your lot. Well, that's splendid. Um, we're going to be going out listening to Lindsay Buckingham talking about rumours and having to bump into Stevie Nicks every morning in the studio. Do we know who is the guest in a fortnight's time, Jasper? I think it's Miles Marshall Lewis ah, to talk about yes, Kendrick that's... Lamar, which I'm very much looking forward to. Right, well, th- that sounds fabulous. And Barney will be back in the hot seat as well. I May I go have a lie down? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, off, I'm off to watch Ramstein videos. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, on that happy note, I think we'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. The album's called Rumors. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and uh, and there are songs on it that that just beg to be dissected in terms of a. Uh, 
personal relationship. Yeah, but none of that was a choice. That was all of that was just an outgrowth of the fact that we were this strange group of of, of people who functioned through chemistry and. Uh, the fact that, that we were also two couples who had broken up, and yeah. and the fact that uh, you know while we were making rumors, I had to see Stevie every day, and never really got a chance to get any closure, and still had to try to make the right choices to do the right thing for her, and in a, in some ironic sense, help her to move away. And yeah. uh, that's a Zen riddle. <laughs> it is. It sure is. And uh, we we were so aware because that first album had also done very well. There was this calling, this destiny that we needed to fulfill, and that uh, what was going on with one's personal life was secondary to that calling, and, and we did uh, stand up and, and, and try to fulfill that calling. That was Lindsay Buckingham in conversation with Bud Scoper in 2011, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francesa podcast today from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sports Betters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sports Betters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with the 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 